Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Well, welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101, GC. Can you believe we're already two weeks into the court's new term? Time flies, Zach. It sure does. So, GC, what's been going on at the court these past two weeks? So these past two weeks, we're still at the early stages of the court, so we don't have opinions yet, but we are having oral arguments going on, and uh, the court is still granting and denying new cases. Uh, On that front, we had um, four new cases coming out of the long conference. The long conference, uh, for those listeners who don't know, is that first conference the court has when it comes back out of recess, and they consider hundreds, if not close to a thousand petitions uh, for certiorari to decide which cases to take and deny. A lot of new cases granted at a long conference. I'm going to pull out two notable ones. One is called Concepcion versus United States. uh, And that case asked the court to resolve how lower courts should deal with intervening factual and legal developments when resentencing certain offenders under the First Step Act. And you know, GC, I understand that this is an important case because the circuit courts have been divided on that issue. And in fact, some circuits have required district courts to consider those intervening developments. Some circuits permit but don't require district courts to consider those developments. And then some circuits prohibit their district courts from considering those developments. Uh, So I imagine this will be a very welcome decision from the court. Yeah, I think so. The uh, lower courts are a patchwork quilt of different approaches. I think they'll appreciate uh, a sort of unified standard coming from the top. Agreed. Now, I know you said there were two cases you want to talk about. So what's the other one? Yes, the other is Shirtliff versus Boston. There, the city of Boston refused to fly a Christian flag at the request of a local Christian organization. Um, And this was a An issue because in the past it has routinely uh, agreed to fly the flags of other organizations, more than 200 various flags over the course of 15 years or so. The interesting question raised by this case is whether the government speech doctrine should be applied instead of the traditional forum analysis that we're all familiar with in First Amendment cases. Well, it certainly sounds like a very important and uh, again, a very interesting case. And there is one more case I wanted to flag. No pun intended. Uh, Zach. (laughs) It's still early in the season, getting back into the swing (laughs) of things. Uh, But this next case is FEC versus Cruz. Now, this is a case with a unique procedural posture. It didn't come to the court through the normal certiorari process, but instead it came to the court as part of the court's mandatory appellate jurisdiction uh, because the underlying dispute had initially been heard by a three-judge district court, uh, which is a very rare thing these days. Uh, But essentially, a three-judge district court heard the case uh, where the constitutionality of certain campaign finance statutes and administrative rules were being considered. Now, Chuck Cooper represents Senator Cruz, who's challenging these campaign finance provisions on constitutional grounds. And Chuck Cooper, representing Senator Cruz, won in front of that three-judge court. Uh, So this should certainly be an interesting case uh, to see what the Supreme Court does with it. Yeah, I think we'll have a lot of fun talking about that one down the road, especially, you know, these mandatory appellate jurisdiction cases are so rare. Right. Uh, So that'll be really interesting. 
as are the three-judge district courts these days. True. Well, on to oral arguments. The most notable case this week was the death penalty appeal of the Boston Marathon bomber. The court uh, was considering whether there were procedural defects in the lower court proceedings that led to the jury imposing the death penalty. And I think some of the other cases, GC, there was a water dispute uh, between two states. And I also think there was an abortion-related case, Cameron v. EMW, uh, that had an abortion issue attached to it, but really is a a civil procedure case about whether and when uh, a state's attorney general can intervene in a case where no one else is defending a state's law. Uh, So certainly some, uh, again, some interesting cases. That's right. And oral arguments are back in the court, although— Excellent. um, Excellent. Yes, indeed, although the public is not admitted. They are live streaming the audio still. But Justice Kavanaugh actually was not in the court uh, these last couple weeks because he got COVID. Uh, So he's been participating over the phone. Well, I think, GC, Justice Kavanaugh was out the first week of oral arguments, but he was back for the second week. Uh, So fortunately, the court is back to, uh, to full strength now. True. Good. Good catch. And uh, interesting development on the questioning uh, side of things. So uh, the oral arguments during the pandemic over the phone were all what's called seriatim, right? So all, each justice had a certain period of time uninterrupted. That's a big word, GC. You have to explain <laughs> what you. that means. <laughs> I, have, I have got one or two big words I keep in my back pocket so people think <laughs> I'm smart. Unfortunately, I do not. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so uh, with each justice having uninterrupted question time, Justice Thomas uh, joined into the in, into the fray in a big way. Excellent. Excellent. Yes, indeed. And he has continued to do so uh, as the court has returned uh, to uh, sitting in person. So that's wonderful. You know, that is one of the uh, best developments I've heard uh, in a long time because I thought Justice Thomas's questions were absolutely phenomenal uh, during the arguments. Yeah, that's a point you hear from a lot of the advocates. And for this week's interview, we're talking with George Mason University Professor Todd Zawicki. We're pleased to be joined today by Professor Todd Zawicki. Professor Zawicki currently teaches in the areas of bankruptcy, contracts, and commercial law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He previously served as the Director of the Office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission, worked in private practice, and recently chaired the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force on Federal Consumer Financial Law. He also clerked uh, on a U.S. Court of Appeals. He's authored more than 130 articles and is one of the most highly cited legal scholars in several fields. He's testified before the House and Senate numerous times and was a proponent of the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act, affectionately known as BAPCA, uh, and he also served as the editor of the Supreme Court Economic Review uh, for many years. Professor Zwicky, welcome to the program. Thanks, Zach. Great to be with you. Well, to start things off today, I wanted to ask, what made you want to be a lawyer? It's one of those funny things, Zach, where I can't even remember when I didn't want to be a lawyer, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny because I'm the first in my family to graduate from college. We don't have any lawyers in, our, in my family, but um, but very early on, I just um, uh, was attracted to the law. I was attracted to sort of the process of, I guess, argumentation. My parents probably thought I argued too much for free when I was a kid. <laughs> But um, but I can't remember a time when I didn't plan on being a lawyer, except for a brief uh, dalliance after I went to grad school in economics, where I almost thought about becoming an economist. Okay. Uh, and so now I'm a lawyer who is also an economist. Uh, so uh, so I guess I combine those two. 
Absolutely. Well, is that what made you want to become a law professor in particular, your uh, your graduate studies in economics? When I uh, when I graduated from college, I thought I might want to be a professor, um, and I ended up going to economics uh, grad school and fell in with um, a law and economics group at Clemson University. I went to uh, to grad school. Um, and what I really found out, the reason I became a professor was um, I found that when I was in private practice, I clerked and there was a private practice in Atlanta, and I found I was spending my free time working on law review articles mm. uh, just because as interesting and as fun um, as practice was, and I had a very positive practice experience, um, I just felt the call to teach and write. Um, and no matter how interesting the issues were when I was in practice, they weren't my issues, and right. there were a lot of questions I wanted to track down, and so... Um, eventually, I became a professor, and I've been fortunate to be able to do that for over 25, about 25 years now, um, and it's Excellent. been a great ride. What's been your uh, favorite part of being a law professor? A number of things. Uh, the first is, as you said, I've written a lot of articles, and I write in sure. a lot of different areas. And um, to in, in law itself is applied problem solving. So if you think about the difference between being a lawyer with economics training and vice versa, is one of my colleagues at George Mason in the economics department, Peter Betke, says there's two types of economists, looking out the window economists and looking at the blackboard economists. Um, and my interests have always uh, been looking out the window. So um, trying to understand sort of how law uh, applies in the real world. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, I've been very involved in consumer finance, for example, which is an area where there hasn't been a lot of good economic study and not a lot of sensible legal thought. Um, in a nutshell, to summarize it, legal thought on consumer finance has basically been uh, set by Elizabeth Warren for the past 20 years, which tells you what an intellectual wasteland uh, <laughs> uh, uh, that uh, that field has been. So that left a lot of interesting questions open to understand how consumers use credit, um, how regulation can help people accomplish their goals, what is the importance of consumer finances for people and that sort of thing. And so, um, and so that's what I really loved about being a law professor is it allows me to actually dig into real-world issues, think about how to make people's lives better, Think about how regulations uh, help hurt people and mm -hmm. occasionally how we can improve regulations that might actually help people. So what drew you to these particular fields like bankruptcy, uh, consumer finance protection, uh, regulation reform? What initially made you interested to pursue those uh, areas of scholarship? A lot of it is, as I was just saying, is that it has a real impact on people's lives. Um, a lot of people get attracted to these sort of high-profile issues like free speech and stuff like that, and that's great. I mean, those are important issues. But um, but to a large extent, um, a lot of these areas of economic and financial regulation, especially in law schools, have been given over to the left. Mm -hmm. um, and they do a lot of things that are really bad for people. They hurt people. They hurt the economy. They interfere with people's opportunities to improve their lives. Um, and a lot of it just lacks a lot of economic sophistication. And so um, in my view, there were just a lot of unanswered questions that were really important to people's everyday lives. And um, and I wanted to to uh, to to understand those better. So bankruptcy, Great. for example, as you mentioned, I was very involved as a young professor, bankruptcy uh, reform efforts at the late 90s and, and early 2000s. Sure. And I was a supporter of that law, which I think um, that, you know, basically – balanced the the, uh, the need for people to have bankruptcy relief with personal responsibility um, and rewarding people who pay their bills and not just allowing bankruptcy to be a tool of financial planning uh, sure. for people. 
And so I think those are the kind of things that are really important to uh, to individual households, to the American economy, and um, sort of much larger issues in American society. Sure. Now, you mentioned uh, that you clerked as well uh, for the Fifth Circuit, and I believe it was for Judge Jerry Smith on the Fifth Circuit. <laughs> That's right. What can you tell us about that experience? Uh, that is one of the great experiences. About the only experience in life that's close to being a law professor uh, is uh, being a judicial <laughs> clerk. And and Judge Smith is uh, now a, a legend. Uh, he was a Reagan appointee. Um, I think he's in the top 10 now of judges who have the most former clerks who are law professors. Um, he's had uh, just a, a remarkable number of, uh, of, uh, of clerks and the influence he's had. My co-clerks, for example, one is now a Hollywood scriptwriter. The other is a judge <laughs> on the uh, United States tax court. Wow. Um, the, the clerks who clerked right before me, one is a senior lawyer at the Institute for Justice. Um, uh, he's kind of put his um, clerks in a very – a lot of them also. He's got three or four now who are actually federal judges, uh, including Jim Ho um, and some others. So he's had a huge influence. He's a, he's a brilliant man um, and just a man with a great heart uh, who's really created a, a great experience. And, um, and I was really fortunate to have the opportunity to learn from him and um, have him as such an important uh, mentor and influence in my life. Excellent. Are there any special memories you have from your time clerking with Judge Smith, or were there any traditions uh, that he had with his law clerks? <laughs> and I see you chuckling there a little bit. <laughs> there were a lot of great memories uh, with uh, with Judge Smith, and um, being in the Fifth Circuit is just a great place. Uh, uh, the the Fifth Circuit, um, which covers Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Uh, one of the great secrets of the Fifth Circuit is that we sit in New Orleans, uh. and um, <laughs> and Judge Smith um, is always stayed um, at one of the uh, hotels, um, one of the really nice hotels, sort of classic hotels, in uh, um, down in on Bourbon Street in the French Quarter, rather than out in sort of a sterile hotel by the courthouse. Mm. And so every morning we would uh, get up and walk uh, walk from the hotel out to the courthouse uh, while New Orleans was waking up. Um, with all the uh, sights, but especially the smells of uh, <laughs> New Orleans uh, first thing in the morning. It's very distinctive. Um, very distinctive, no doubt. Uh, and just that opportunity to talk with him. And then while I was clerking, I also had the opportunity to um, to meet. We sat one week with the uh, legendary John Minor Wisdom mm. himself, who the Fifth Circuit Courthouse building is named after, one of the great uh, four horsemen of desegregation. Right. Um, and uh, just a legendary uh, a character. And the, the Fifth Circuit's just uh, a, a, a remarkable circuit, incredibly collegial, brilliant uh, judges. Um, and, um, you know, I just have so many memories from, uh, from that, um, that experience of uh, Judge Smith as well as the other judges on the Fifth Circuit. Excellent. Now, in addition to Judge Smith, have you had any other uh, particular mentors in your career that helped you when you were initially getting started as a law professor, as a young associate? Uh, that were very helpful in your uh, career path? That's a great question, Zach, and I really have been fortunate. Um, tapping into that Clemson network where I went to grad school, it turned out to be very interesting because I'm at George Mason, and one of um, what George Mason is known for is um, law and economics, mm -hmm. um, and used to have the Law and Economics Center there. And when I was at Clemson, there were a lot of professors at Clemson who had been affiliated with the Law and Economics Center, particularly when it was at Emory University before mm -hmm. it moved to George Mason. A lot of them were uh, were very influential, but what, but one of the things I've really been blessed to have seen Zach um, is um, I've had the opportunity to work with some brilliant people who are also brilliant leaders. Mm -hmm. And so one 
I will single out is uh, Tim Muris. Um, when I uh, during the first Bush administration, um, not my first W Bush administration, right, right. 2003-04, I worked at the Federal Trade Commission, and Tim Muris was the um, chairman of the FTC at that time. Um, and Tim had been around the FTC for decades and was really a model of how somebody who believes in markets and individual liberty can um, run an administrative agency in a way that will actually promote free markets, competition, consumer right. choice in a very principled sort of way and not just get rolled over by the uh, bureaucracy, um, right. uh, as well as just being a brilliant lawyer. Um, we've had some great leaders at uh, George Mason uh, at the law school, Henry Butler, who runs the Law and Economics Center, Dan Polsby, who was a dean for a very long time, our current dean, Ken Randall, all of whom are people who um, – are very um, are just great leaders, and one of the things I really learned from them is um, just the value of integrity, sure, um, and the importance of integrity in um, in just honor in being a good leader. So that you, when when somebody tells you yes or somebody tells you no, you know they've got reasons for it, right? Uh, that are principled, and um, and um, and I've and and they've just been all been very good to me. Excellent. Now, you mentioned the Law and Economics Center at George Mason. I believe you were the director of it for a period of time. Is that correct? That's right, yes. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was the executive director for a few years. Well, can you tell us a little bit about the work of the Law and Economics Center? And particularly, uh, one of the things I'm interested in is I know there was a training program in law and economics for uh, new judges. Uh, so if you could share with us a little bit about that, that would be fantastic. Well, it's not just for new judges. Um, the Law and Economics Center goes back to the 1970s, actually, and it arose out of um, a great man named Henry Manny, who was a law professor, tried to start a new law school at the University of Rochester uh, in 1971. And um, the incumbent law schools in upstate New York blocked mm. um, their becoming a law school. So in 1974, he moved to Miami and started the Law and Economics Center. Um, and for ever since then, we've been running programs, ed, uh, economics and uh, education programs for uh, for judges and for law professors. Okay. Um, and some, you know, law for economists, but mainly economics for law professors sure. um, and economics for judges. And at one point um, in the 80s or 90s, something like a third of the federal judiciary had been through the Law and Economics mm. Center programs. And this is the way in which a lot of um, the ideas of law and economics, especially, you know, the Chicago School uh, Revolution and antitrust, sure. securities law, corporation law, a lot of these ideas um, were pushed into the uh, the legal mainstream, out of the law schools and into uh, the law through the education programs run by the, by the Law and Economics Center. And it continues uh, to this day uh, to continue – doing basic economics training, but also advanced economics training on all the emerging issues, whether it's antitrust, which is back in the news, whether it's consumer finance, whether it's uh, economics of privacy law, um, uh, which are programs that uh, that we run. And um, we've continued to do it basically now since 1974. We've had at wow. least one judges program, economics program, every year since 1974. So we are Still going strong, and um, and uh, it's been it was a thrill for me to be the executive director, and I still continue to uh, help uh, lecture in the programs and run a lot of the programs. Oh, that's fantastic! Now, in addition to being involved with the Law and Economics Center, I know you've also been involved in other public interest uh, organizations and the broader public interest uh, movement. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Uh, sometimes they joke that like the like the um, free market uh, uh, legal movement is six degrees of separation from Todd Zawicki. Uh, <laughs> so um, so I've been a uh, senior fellow at the Cato Institute right okay. now. I currently am, which is uh, very, uh, very thrilling, of course. And I've also done work with Mercatus Center. I'm also on the board of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on the board of the Bill of Rights Institute. Um uh, I'm on the board of the Institute for Humane Studies okay. uh, as well, and I've been on the board of some other organizations, Foundation for Research on Economics and the Environment. Um, and um, and I'm also – I've done a lot with the Institute for Justice um, and obviously sure. with John Malcolm and your great people here at Heritage um, sure. as well as the folks over at the Federalist Society. Um, and, um, and so I've just, you know, I've, I've helped in a lot of different ways. I've, uh, helped file amicus briefs. I've spoken a lot at, uh, federal society programs or like the heritage program I was speaking at, uh, today. Sure. Um, I've served as an expert witness, um, actually, and done, uh, um, expert testimony for the Institute for Justice for some of their cases oh, on public choice and the law. Um, and, um, and I just think this is, you know, this is the public interest law has been one of the leading spears that the left has met, used to try to remake society, um, between private interest litigation as well as their sort of, um, uh, water carriers in the, uh, um, class action bar, right? And activist, um, um, state AG offices. They've really used, um, litigation very strategically and, um, uh, the free market uh, legal movement um, has developed and matured over time. Um, it's been really thrilling to see the different directions it's uh, it's sure. taken. Um, but we've kind of, I think, finally kind of, you know, matched on the playing field there. Right. And one of the good things I've, one of the experiences I've had of doing a lot of these things is I've gotten to know a lot of the people. I kind of learn lessons as new people, younger people uh, come into the uh, to the movement to have seen a lot of this and been around a lot of this with a lot of different organizations and be able to contribute that perspective in these uh, in these cases. And it kind of came to a head this past year um, when I uh, became a plaintiff. Uh, right. Uh, and not just a lawyer, but a plaintiff in suing George Mason University over their vaccine mandate that they tried to impose on me. Um, and I knew exactly who to call at the uh, New Excellent. Civil Liberties Alliance to be my lawyers to actually take on the case. Well, will you tell us a little bit about that experience of being a plaintiff as opposed to being a, law- <laughs> a lawyer for a change and well, it, about the suit? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's um, a little harrowing to be a plaintiff. I'll say th- I'll say that much. It's uh, not for the faint of not heart. Not for the faint words. of heart. No, you got to be in or you got to be out. Don't if you're ever going to think about doing it, don't do it halfway. <laughs> uh, that's 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 my advice. Um, yeah, so George Mason, so I have natural immunity. Um, I got COVID. I recovered. Um, uh, immunity is more than about antibodies, but I actually have very high antibody levels as well. I got a, a test from uh, my immunologist. Let me do tests, and my uh, antibodies were 894 times baseline level, which is comparable to somebody who had been vaccinated. And the university wanted to force me to get vaccinated. And uh, and I said no, um, and I tried to explain to them that they should provide an exemption for those with natural immunity, and they originally uh, resisted. Um, and um, and so then I um, went to the New Civil Liberties Alliance, and we ended up bringing a lawsuit. Um, eventually, I pro- I was able to get a medical exemption, which I'm fortunate mm. that they gave it um, to me. But um, but the but the refu- and, and and there were two aspects to it, Zach, which is one is it, it was a completely medically unnecessary procedure. Um, it is a simple, you know, flat 
fundamental rule of medical ethics is you don't force people, you don't, doctors don't even um, suggest to people that you should undergo medical treatments that are uh, medically unnecessary because they always have a risk of side effects. Um, yeah, you know, I could get appendicitis, but that doesn't mean they go in and take my, my, my appendix right. uh, uh, just to prevent it, right? But the second thing is, is the evidence was pretty clear. Uh, the evidence is now quite clear that um, those who have had COVID and recovered um, are in an elevated risk of uh, serious adverse side effects. Uh, in one recent study, for example, found that those who have had COVID and gotten vaccinated are have about a 7% chance of ending up in the hospital or emergency room compared to somebody who's never had COVID where it was 0.6%. Mm. So we're talking more than 11 times higher risk for a completely unnecessary procedure. Uh, in that case, it's clear that if you're going to end up in the emergency room or hospital, it's, it's much riskier for me, especially when my antibodies level was so high and so risked, uh, such a high risk of hyperinflammation. Um, and so I just thought it was really important. I thought it was important for me and for my health. And fortunately, my wife um, and family were very supportive of it. But also, I think it was an important um, to, to stick up for other people uh, who may not be, you may not know as much. You may not have sort of the wherewithal I have right. as a tenured professor to try to vindicate this uh, important principle. So, uh, and it's pro- kind of provided a template for a lot of other lawsuits around the country now, which is the other thing we were hoping to do was to help uh, other people uh, who may not be as sophisticated understand how to bring one of these cases and try to have their rights protected. Sure. So where do you think a lot of this uh, vaccine-related litigation is heading? Do you think any of this will make its way to the Supreme Court, or is it still working its way through the lower federal courts uh, right now? It's still very early on in the lower federal courts, largely because a lot of these mandates are still very early. And there's two there's two tracks here, Zach, which is one is – the mandates that involve public employees, sure. so um, which is me. I was teaching at a public university, and the Constitution applies in that case. And so we were able to point to uh, constitutional precedent on things that, like, for example, we, I have a fundamental right to bodily integrity, um, mm-hmm. and the government can't just force me to uh, um, inject things into my body unless they've got a really good reason to do it, a compelling reason uh, to do it. Um, there was unconstitutional conditions claims uh, and the like. Uh, so that's one track. The other track are private employers where people might have claims under Title VII um, or uh, other uh, employment uh, employment laws. Right. And, and I just don't know as much about those because those haven't been implicated in my case. Uh, but these cases are still pretty early on. Um, uh, we saw, you know, obviously Biden's uh, OSHA mandate or regulation, if it ever gets issued, right. is going to raise a whole set of new issues in addition to these uh these state cases. I think it's inevitable if they persist on these things that um, it'll make its way to the Supreme Court, which is really important because they, the precedent that is at play here is this this uh, horrible case from 1905 called Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which wasn't that bad in itself. It upheld um, uh, a somebody could be fined $5 if they didn't get a smallpox vaccination right. during that period. And course, we had 1905 medicine at the time. Right. They couldn't tell whether they couldn't confirm whether or not you had natural immunity to smallpox. Now, of course, if you have natural immunity to smallpox or measles or anything else, you don't have to get vaccinated under state law. Uh, but that case reached its uh, nadir in a case called Buck versus Bell, uh, which upheld a forced sterilization law uh, in Virginia on the basis of Jacobson, and uh, that case, I think, was in the 1940s, uh, maybe 1920s. 
But anyway, it led to a backlash mm. uh, uh, inevitably. That, that That's an era where you also had Korematsu and cases like that. Right. And um, so beginning in the 1960s, the Supreme Court started recognizing you have a right to bodily integrity and the state just can't do whatever they want to to you. And so I'm hoping eventually these cases will work their way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will will rec- you know reconcile these two lines of cases, this old, archaic, barbaric line of cases uh, that go back to Jacobson that say that the state can do whatever they want to to you uh, just because – Versus these new, more enlightened sort of modern cases that recognize that there's a real potential for overreach by the government uh, when they do that. And so you have a right to bodily integrity. You have a right to uh, uh, to make sure that the state actually has a good reason for doing what they're doing. Those two lines of cases haven't really been reconciled yet, but I think it's um, it, and this would be a good time to do it. Well, I have one final question for you, Professor Zalicki. It's something we ask all of our guests on SCOTUS 101. Uh, who's your favorite justice? If you could talk to any justice, living or dead, who would it be and why? Uh, well, I, I think I'm contractually obliged since I teach at Antonin Scalia <laughs> Law School uh, to say the great Justice Scalia, but also has the it's virtue. It's a good answer either way. Yeah, it probably it also has the virtue of uh, of being uh, being correct, I think. <laughs> uh, obviously, the man was brilliant. Uh, he was a, a legend. He changed uh, the path of uh, American law um, and uh, for, for the better, I uh, I think overall, um, just a brilliant, uh, brilliant justice. But um, given what I've been through the last few months, I think I have to give a strong uh, runner up to uh, Pierce Butler, Mm. Uh, Justice Butler. I don't know that much about him other than the fact that he was the sole dissenter in the Buck versus Bell case, uh, where the majority upheld forced sterilization of this uh, poor woman on the theory that it's Justice Holmes said in the majority, three generations of imbeciles are enough Uh, and the medical belief at the time was based on eugenics, and the idea was that um, they called her feeble-minded, uh, which she wasn't at all. She was just a poor rural woman who just never got to school beyond sixth grade, um, and they basically attacked her for other reasons. Fascinating story. But Pierce Butler was the one justice who was willing to say no uh, to this forced sterilization of this uh, this woman, whereas the majority just went along with Justice Holmes. So I have to say that's a somewhat inspiring uh, story uh, for me. So I'm going to give him a, based on that opinion alone, that dissent alone, I'm going to give him a a runner-up position to the great Justice Scalia. How's that sound? That is certainly a a reasonable answer. So, well, Professor Zwicky, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. I really enjoyed our conversation, and we'd love to have you back again in the future. Sounds great, Zach. It's great talking with you. Thanks so much. All right, GC, as we start a new term, I thought we could get back into the swing of things with some trivia, and I thought we could shake things up and tackle surprising facts about the Supreme Court. Uh, So you're ready to go? All right, I'm ready. All right. Well, here's the first one. I thought this one was fascinating uh, when I first heard it. Uh, So here's the question. Which then-sitting Supreme Court justice did John Boehner approach about becoming Senator Bob Dole's running mate for the 1996 presidential election? This is wild, Zach. I had I had no idea. I have no idea. I didn't even know this happened. What? I, I know. I was shocked as well. Uh, but it was actually Justice Antonin Scalia. And I know this uh, because John Boehner recently released a memoir of his time on Capitol Hill. It's called On the House. And in his memoir, Boehner recounts his efforts to woo Justice Scalia from the bench into the world of politics. What? 
I, I know. Apparently, they even went so far as to meet at a restaurant in Washington, D.C. to discuss the proposal. As I understand it, Scalia didn't know what Boehner wanted to meet with him about, but agreed to meet with him. Uh, and Boehner met with him and even went so far as to suggest Justice Scalia to Bob Dole to be his running mate. <laughs> I, I know. It's a wild, It's one of those only in D.C. Uh, type stories. Uh but obviously, that didn't come to fruition, and Justice Scalia stayed on the bench. And it's interesting listening to John Boehner tell this story, uh, because Boehner concluded that that ultimately was the best thing for our country, uh, that Justice Scalia stayed on the Supreme Court. And I have to say, I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Seconded. All right, that was a tough one. Uh, so here's another interesting one I found. Uh, you know, we'll stay on the theme of Justice Scalia, sort okay. of, for a minute. Uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg uh, famously were, were great friends, despite their ideological differences. Uh, so here's a surprising question about Justice Ginsburg. What was the notorious RBG's actual first name? Uh, Zach, this is an excellent question, and I happen to have only recently discovered the answer and was shocked. It is not Ruth. That's right. It's not. So what is it? It's Joan. I, you are absolutely correct. And like you, I was shocked to learn about this. Uh, but according to Duke Law Professor Marin Levy, uh, when Justice Ginsburg, now she obviously wasn't Justice Ginsburg when this happened, uh, but when her parents enrolled her in school, they learned that there would be other Jones. Uh, so they used her middle name, Ruth, to avoid any confusion. Uh, so here's my question, GC. Does the notorious <laughs> JBG have the same ring to it? <laughs> JBG, RBG. <laughs> it's a little JBG. bit more of a tongue twister. <laughs> you know, actually, I, I kind of think JBG rolls off the tongue a little better. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I'm so used <laughs> to RBG. It's uh, It'd be a tough sell. Uh, but yeah, you're excellent. Well done. It's uh, Joan. Her first name was Joan. Now, GC, you mentioned earlier in the episode that the Supreme Court's building isn't yet open to the public. But when it is open to the public, there's a gift shop and folks can go in and, and buy souvenirs from their visit to the Supreme Court. So according to the Supreme Court Historical Society, which runs the Supreme Court's gift shop, quote, the verdict is in and these are our most popular item. So, GC... Uh, what are we going to have to buy the next time uh, we're over at the court? I'm not sure, but I'm going to guess it's the quill pens that they give out to advocates. That's a great guess, uh, but that's not it. Oh. It's actually a gavel-headed pencil. Uh, and if you go on the uh, Supreme Court Historical Society's website, you can see a picture. Uh, these pencils have two erasers, so they look like a gavel. <laughs> and written on the side, is it says, with liberty and justice for all, the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, so I think we'll definitely have to pick up a few of those to, uh, to add to our desks. <laughs> you know what? It just sort of hit me. How fun is it that the highest court in the land runs a gift shop with, like, gimmicky things? I love it. I think all courts should do it. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> uh, Got to earn a little pocket money some way. Uh, all right, GC, here's your final question uh, for the day. Now, I was a little surprised by this question because I was surprised to learn that there are actually several presidents, more than one or two, who have not appointed any Supreme Court justices uh, to the bench. So here's my question. How many presidents never had an opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And just to be clear, we're not going to count the Biden administration uh, since it's still right, right. Uh, ongoing. So okay. how many? 
Okay, let me think through this. I know Jimmy Carter had none. I am almost Excellent. positive. Okay, all right. That's one. Uh, William Henry Harrison, uh, I am 99% sure did not since he died almost immediately after taking office. Excellent. Excellent. You've got two. Okay. Um, now we're in the world of guesswork. Um, it's where I to live. Save, <laughs> <laughs> to save our listeners the time of me uh, str- struggling through the list of presidents and embarrassing myself, I'm going to say I know two, and uh, that's all I know for sure. Well, that's well done. So it's actually four. There were four presidents who never got to make an appointment. Uh, you're absolutely right. William Henry Harrison did not uh, because he died only 31 days after being inaugurated. Uh, you're right. Jimmy Carter did not. And in fact, Jimmy Carter is the only president to serve a full term who never had an opportunity uh, to appoint a Supreme Court justice. There were two more. There were four in total. The other one was Zachary Taylor. He died 16 months Makes after sense. his inauguration. And then the fourth president was Andrew Johnson, and he didn't get to make any appointments uh, because a hostile Congress blocked several of his nominees. Well, well done on trivia today, GC. You're uh, you're getting the uh, the season off to a good start. I, I don't know, Zach. I, what what did I get? Two and a half questions. Hey, no, I think uh, one and a half questions. <laughs> hey, that's I appreciate pretty... you curving uh, curving the grade for me. I'm all about grading on a curve, and uh, I'd appreciate similar treatment when it's my turn. Fat chance, Zach. (laughs) I know, I know. That's all we have for today. So thank you, everyone, for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.